Generating traffic and sales can be a challenge for online merchants. But selling on the Walmart marketplace puts your products in front of millions of customers who shop on walmart.com. And right now, sellers who join Walmart Marketplace can save up to 50% on referral and fulfillment fees for the first 90 days. So get started today. Head over to marketplace.walmart.com savings. That's marketplace.walmart.com savings. Welcome to e-commerce conversations, a podcast by Practical E-commerce. What is going on, Internet? Eric Van Holtz here, back again with another e-commerce conversations. Hope all is going well on the other side of the internet. On the other side of the internet from me today, Josh. Josh Durham with Align Growth Management. What's up, Josh? What's up, my dude? Thanks for having me. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Thanks for being on the show. You're joining me from Nashville, Tennessee, right? Yeehaw. Yes, sir. As with all my guests, I'm always excited that they're on the show. Josh is no exception to that. Our days go back, I guess it's been, what, about two or three years since we met at a Clavio. Yeah, Clavio. You call it Clavio? No, I I like the hard A. Okay. (laughs) I think it's Clavio. Yeah, yeah. So we met at a Clavio, what was that, September 2019? 2019. Yeah, it was like in the fall. Yeah. And I sat at the table with you and what's the dude's name? Brett. Brett. Brett was there at the no, time. I don't think it was Brett who I was talking to. Maybe it was Brett. It wasn't Brett. Was it our email guy or our CMO? I think it was the CMO. It was Brett at the time. Okay. And then Bryant stepped in after that. Yep. Yeah. Because yeah, Bryant is from Purple. Yeah, yeah. He used to be the head of paid media at Purple Mattress. Yeah, yeah. So it was definitely Brett. And you know, those conferences, I'm sorry, I'm kind of hijacking it, but those conferences are really interesting because I always go in with a, an open mind and no expectations. And, you know, I'm not in the like daily email world. Like I'm not sending emails out. I'm not working in Clavio. Big fan of Clavio. I think it's great. We use it, but I know nothing about how to set up a flow or a campaign or SMS blast and stuff like that. Right. So for me, it was just kind of shoot the shit and it was just grabbing breakfast, talking to you guys where I just got so much knowledge and information. I'm like, oh man, I was just so jacked up to like, you know, uh, go home after talking with you guys. So anyways, sorry to ramble on about how we met many years ago. Why don't you go ahead and kind of give your introduction of what you've been up to, kind of your story, how you ended up at Groove Life and then uh, what you're doing now. Yeah, for sure. So I guess I got into the e-com game, I guess you call it, like, I guess seven years now. So yeah, 2015, I started my first e-com brand. It was a company called Waiting Comforts. And we made weighted blankets. We were actually the first weighted blanket for adults on the market. And yeah, from there, scaled up that business. We employed refugee women in Nashville, Tennessee, to provide a sustainable source of income and also paid English classes on site. But uh, anyways, kind of cut my teeth on my own e-com brand from there, scaled that business to about six mil a year. And then it tanked overnight. It was brutal. I had to fire everyone. What happened? Did you did just like Facebook dry up or something? Or The market kind of fell out from under us. So kind of like, for one, we didn't evolve on our product well. We didn't get past kind of like the 2.0 of our product. And then also manufacturing in the States was kind of our biggest downfall. So... You know, our competitors had automated it in China. You know, they were making weighted blankets for like $5 a pop. My cost was, you know, 40 or 50. And all of a sudden the margin 
just was was taken out of the market as soon as Target came on the market with their own at the time. And so, yeah, the margins weren't there anymore. And then that affected Facebook ads. Our overhead was super gnarly. just really didn't make sense. Oh, man. So you just saw like month over month kind of like sales disappear. Yeah, we kind of started seeing that in fall of 2018 was really where we kind of started seeing some of the initial you know, shakes in the foundation. I remember specifically like I was two weeks out from Black Friday and we didn't have enough cash for our payroll to get there and like running an early bird sale to our email list. Shout out to Clavio and to get some cash in, in the door. But ultimately it was kind of like a market fit margin thing at the same time as Facebook ads were getting a little bit more expensive during that time period. But it was really a product issue yeah. overall. Do you have any kind of regrets or learn lessons? Like should have you gone to China to source your product or? Yeah, I feel like maybe the proper solution since, you know, the only thing that was really differentiating us in the market was how it was made. And then also I co-founded that with my mom and she was like a marriage and family therapist. And so having her kind of as like the front and center spokesperson for that business really resonated with the audience. And so I think that like if there had been a blend of maybe, maybe there's some kind of social enterprise impact stateside while maybe manufacturing overseas, maybe we could have kept that story and that part of it. But, you know, I felt like we would have just lost any kind of differentiation in the market and we were just going to be, you know, just another weighted blanket brand. Yeah. Well, I mean, what's bad about being another weighted blanket brand if you're still around versus if you kind of go out of business? True. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, there's also like lots of debt in that business too. So that was another big thing. I actually just tweeted this yesterday. We leveraged almost like a million dollars in debt towards the end of the business trying to keep it open. And that was like just a super scary situation. So there wasn't really like, I didn't really see the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, That was, was kind of like, okay, if we're going to launch anything new, why wouldn't we do this under a, a different LLC that's not, you know, struck with debt. And so that was kind of the kicker. And so we closed that in May, 2019. So you, you shut her down. You didn't sell the business at all? There's Was there any kind of like liquidation or? Yeah, so it was more of an asset sale. So we sold it for really for the brand, you know, kind of like the proprietary things about the brand. So, you know, we had a trademark, the email list, like we sold that to a digital marketing agency and they were kind of using it as their in-house brand. So we did exit from it, but it wasn't like the exit was large enough to pay off the large amount of debt that was left over. Yeah, so you said you accumulated a million bucks of debt. Yeah, it was like a million dollars. And then I assume you signed personal guarantees for that. and Yeah, it was PG's with a bank line of credit, which the bummer about all this is, you know, it wasn't like I was out here just trying to use debt to fund this business. It was kind of like I had a line of credit that was kind of just there as a last, you know, like an emergency situation. And then we just ended up not hitting some of the projections throughout the year. And we just needed that cash to fund inventory for our very ambitious projections. And so some of that too, you know, timing of the market product, but some of that also was because of our, you know, we tried to go from like 2 mil a year to 10. Yeah. And that was too ambitious. I feel like that's kind of like the whole crux of building a business is like the impatience of what it takes to get to where it needs to go and just wanting to go from 2 million to 10 million in a year. <laughs> Cause you always hear stories about it, right? You always hear about the unicorns that just blow up native, you know, native deodorant. They're all a dime a dozen. And I think it puts a lot of strain on a business because 
it, we kind of saw that this year. It's just like the faster you grow, the more you got to put into inventory. The more you put in inventory, the more you tie your cash up. The more you tie your cash up, the less money you have to market it. And then you kind of get stuck with all this inventory and then not the capital to sell it. Yeah, it's a vicious cycle. And then you go into doing a sale every two weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a spiral, man. It's, it's deadly. Yeah, so I think it's like one of the hardest things to do is really like manage your cash flow so much that, you know, maybe you're not growing at the rate that you want to grow. But you've got the cash flow to be able to prevent you from doing dumb marketing. Yeah, absolutely. I remember seeing our friend Patrick Cadu. Is that how you say his last name? Well, it says it sounds like canoe. So. That sounds like canoe. I think it's Cadu. But I remember seeing him tweet a picture last Christmas of like all these boxes. And he's like, my entire net worth is in these boxes. <laughs> and I was like, that is how it feels, you yeah. know, having all that cash locked up. Patrick Cadu of Supply, who's been on this podcast a couple times so be sure to follow him on twitter and he's always dropping information bombs but yeah i mean it's like i don't know the amount of beard oil and like shampoo and conditioner that i personally own is outrageous if you think about it as a business as an extension of your ownership so did yeah. that you know like you said you wanted a business with your mom was she carrying any of that debt are you in speaking terms with your mom yeah we are yeah, yeah. We're, we're good yeah but yeah, she had a portion of that debt for sure. Yeah. So yeah, there were some other vendors. I won't name any of the other vendors, but yeah, it was all basically personally guaranteed. Yeah. Now, how does like how do you pay off a million dollars of debt? Just uh, one bite at a time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just I mean, for the most part, the kind of route that we saw was going to be a we were going to have to launch a new product, and then it was going to be like a long six to ten year process paying off that because just the free cash flow that you're going to need to pay that off is, you know, it's pretty gnarly, but, but yeah, I had to file personal bankruptcy in Tennessee. So that's what I tweeted yesterday was I filed officially in September. It was August or September of 2019. So it's been two years, yeah. which is pretty crazy. I think, you know, everyone talks about the winning stories and I love to hear these because this is like the dark side of entrepreneurship. Like what does this do to your psyche? knowing that you've had to file bankruptcy and, and what does bankruptcy look like? What does this process look like? Hopefully nobody has to go through it, but. Right. I mean, for one, it was a dark, dark time, right? Cause I kind of had this high, right? When you're scaling a business, you see all these new, you know, you look at Shopify every day, you have a lot more revenue coming in. It's like an exciting time, right? And as you know, when like an ad hits, you know, it really hits. And so it's kind of like a drug. And so I was kind of like on this high, you know, I made like the Forbes lists kind of thing during that time. But then like within nine months, I was out of business. And so it was just like a huge whiplash. And yeah, I think just like the mental exhaustion of like, you know, I was just trying new things every week to try to keep the business alive, you know, as our overhead was super expensive and we're having to put people on part-time basis, cut costs as much as we can necessary, try to get our marketing engine to work at a more efficient rate, all those things. It was just a lot at the same time, especially when you kind of see the writing on the wall where you might not believe in the brand anymore. That's where it gets really tough. But yeah, it was kind of interesting. I didn't know this, but you know, people who file bankruptcy, there's some people that file bankruptcy like every seven years. Oh, wow. And so I went to court and there's all these people in these, this massive credit card debt that it's like their time for every seven years because you can only file every seven years. I didn't realize this. And like, it was a sad experience overall, but I had so much relief afterwards. It took three months off 
after that, I had like, you know, hardly any cash left over, just enough to live off of for a couple months before I needed to get a job, essentially. And yeah, that was like a very healing experience for me, just being able to kind of like settle down, you know, focus on my health, get back mentally, just kind of rebuild. And that's what I've been doing for two years now. So with bankruptcy, you had like that $1 million line of credit or debt. I assume that is now no longer your responsibility. Right. So yeah, as soon as I went in front of the court and then they basically said, you know, they draw a line in the sand, you know, all this is discharged by the state government. Yeah. And so it's not my responsibility to pay. And then are there still like relationships that you're still paying back, like credit card things, or is it just pretty much like a clean slate? Nope. Clean slate. But now you have to live your life on a cash basis completely, right? No. So that's the interesting thing too. My credit score actually isn't that bad. Like after two years, it's not in a terrible place, but like I've had credit cards existing before that, but now I kind of use credit in terms of like, A, I'm able to borrow against any cash I have in stocks. Mm -hmm. So I'm with like a financial management firm that allows me to do that. So I have like that kind of debt accessible to me. I think that there's also some like workarounds, but I think also I'm pretty sure it comes off of your history in like four years, like halfway through that seven year period. I think it actually comes off of your credit history, which is pretty crazy. Yeah. Did you have to wipe off credit cards as well? Or were there lines of credit and debt that you kind of kept to maintain goodwill or something? There was a good credit card debt there as well with ad spend. Yeah. And that was wiped away. Yeah. All of it. It's bankruptcy. Isn't that crazy? It sounds great, man. Maybe I should do that. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty amazing, actually. You know, it's kind of there for this purpose. Because, you know, like back then, if you had any kind of bankruptcy, it would be like passed on to your children. Right. On your last name. And you wouldn't be able to get debt again for your family's like lifetime, which is crazy, right? And so, yeah, it's pretty cool that the government lets you do this. So the whole idea of like bankruptcy is just like completely new to me because I've never had to do it. And I've always thought of it as this kind of like, you know, like the scarlet letter or whatever, you know, like you wear this badge on you and, you know, you're prevented from getting credit ever again and, you know, this and that. And it sounds like it's something that you have no regrets going into. Yeah, I don't have any regrets. I feel like historically it used to be kind of more of a very negative, like looked at in a very negative light. But everyone I've talked to, even when I put out that, you know, that thread yesterday, I had so many people DM me like, man, I went through a similar situation, had to file bankruptcy, wasn't fun, but I'm back on my feet now and everything's great, you know? So I just feel like the general sentiment has changed a lot in that. And yeah, I don't know. I think it's also one thing if you did it maliciously, you know, right? (laughs) like if you're racking up credit cards every seven years and just to file bankruptcy, I don't recommend that, but you know, if you were trying to grow your business and you're doing that ethically and, you know, like in my situation where the market just changed from under us and we just made an honest mistake, then I think that there's things in place to get you on your feet. I think, you know, the other takeaway I want listeners to have, like entrepreneurship is really hard. And I know personally that as much as I tried to not have this be the case, but my like personality is in line with what the business is doing. So when the business is doing great, I'm feeling great. And then when we're having down months or down days, I'm usually having down days or down months. And the idea, I kind of want to remind people, like, what is the worst thing that can happen in building a business and entrepreneurship? It's your business fails, you have all this money that you guaranteed, and you have to file bankruptcy. It's essentially like going through exactly what you went through. Right. Unless you're fraudulent, then you end up in jail, which 
you know, you should be. So as long as you're doing things to the best of your abilities, honestly, and not lying about it, like who's that girl, Elizabeth Holmes or something, Theranos? I don't know. Who's that? The Theranos girl. Oh, blood thing on Netflix. That was crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as long as you're not doing oh, yeah. it like her, you should be fine. So let's let's quit talking about bankruptcy. I think I've beaten it to death. And let's kind of talk about <laughs> what you did next. You dug yourself out of the hole. Did you go to Groove right after that or? Yeah. So I was kind of like in between. I was trying to decide, you know, am I going to start an agency, start freelancing for other e-com brands? But I met Peter, the CEO of Groove Life, and he was like, why don't you come work here for a year? You don't want to start another business. I was like, you're right. I'm way too tired. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I jumped ship, went over to Groove Life as their head of growth. And so Groove Life, they make the silicone rings and they've grown into belts and wrist straps and stuff like that or watch straps. What makes them so unique? How were they able to grow to, I mean, I think they're doing like 50 million, 20 million, something like that. And they did see that kind of obscene growth year over year right i mean for one product margins right that allows a lot of ad spend a lot of acquisition costs can go into acquiring customers for sure but really i mean this sounds very cliche but they just have done a great job building a brand right and so there's kind of like an untapped market when they came into the market and that was for you know more for your guy that loves to hunt to fish to work with his hands, like that kind of demographic, more blue collar, middle America, whereas everyone else in the market was a lot more focused on, you know, the CrossFitters, the fitness influencers, that kind of thing. And I think that they just really hit the nail right on the head with their marketing, but also with like an amazing guarantee. They stick behind their products. I think that their Groove Life products are the best on the market and they back it up with their 94 year, you know, no BS warranty. And so, yeah, I mean, outside of that, there's a ton of other marketing channels we can dive into as well. The thing that got me going back to that Clavio conference was how you guys were able to grow on YouTube, which almost seems like a black box and not something that uh, I feel like a lot of people on the D2C Twitter sphere kind of talk about. Is that something that's still a big part of their growth strategy? And, you know, what are some lessons that you can have if you want to get into YouTube marketing? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I haven't checked up with them in a while in terms of like the YouTube performance. But yeah, I mean, the big keys to YouTube, it's a creative first platform, right? And so having some really fun content, it's all about that first five seconds on the ad, because you're interrupting someone coming into a long form video. And I think that's also part of the reason it works is because users on YouTube, they're coming for long form content versus scrolling on Instagram, you know, seeing a post for two seconds and continuing to scroll. But if you can get someone to watch a video for a minute and a half, you know, their likeliness of purchasing from you is also going to increase depending on the audience. But yeah, some of the keys were separating out the ad account into its own ad account for attribution purposes, like really, really clean testing on the intro. So we test like four or five variations on the intro of, you know, some really fun videos, but ultimately just keeping it super entertaining. And I think that's a big part that a lot of brands miss is having entertaining content versus just direct response, salesy, and just educational. So I think the combo there of education, entertainment really sets their videos apart. I would add that, you know, we tried the Groove Life model, which is humor as their form of entertainment. And we found that like that did not hit at all. Like either we suck at humor. Really? Which might be kind of the case. <laughs> 
but like our brand is is a little more aspirational. It's a little more like kind of serious motivational. So like entertainment doesn't necessarily mean humor. There's like a lot of ways that you can tell a story. Like a storytelling is entertainment. Like you go, you watch a movie, it's an hour and a half long story. Right. So what is that story or that thing you can tell that is going to entertain them that draws them in within that first five seconds? So I would just kind of like let listeners know that it doesn't have to be humor, but clearly your brand and your audience really resonate well with humor. So you were with Groove for about a year, a couple of years? Yep. Just uh, like a year and a half. Year and a half. And then you decided, tired of working for the man, I got to cut you out <laughs> on my own again, take on another million bucks of debt. and Yeah. I was like, you know, time to go back into debt. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just messing. Yeah. I mean, I kind of was in a transition period. So I got married last year. And so it's just kind of, you know, just rethinking priorities. You know, I, I love entrepreneurship. It's something I'm extremely passionate about. I love providing value to the market. I love creating financial freedom for myself. I love helping employ others. And, you know, I love just the thought of like helping bring up other leaders. And so, yeah, I think ultimately it was kind of just my time to jump ship and strike out on my own. You know, the ad agency world from a brand perspective is super frustrating because everyone promises that they're going to scale your brand like crazy and no one can. And when I say no one can, I know there's clearly companies that can. What are the expectations you need to have as a brand owner going into a relationship, working with your agency to find success, to find ways to help actually grow and scale the business? Yeah, 100%. I think for one, I think I get a healthy expectation is that we're not going to create a big win just off like one tactic alone. Right. And I feel like that's kind of the trap that a lot of agencies have been built around is that, Hey, we know the best ad tactics ever that's going to scale your brand. And in my experience, it's rarely just one thing that's going to drive the needle. Like I have seen it where, you know, a video will take off and then it'll all of a sudden, you know, daily revenue has tripled, but it really only lasts like six weeks. And so I think that like having that expectation in place and that, you know, we're here to help make the best test that we can possible and help add to the strategy past just ad buying. And so, I don't know, I just think that there's a lot more to growing an e-commerce business than just having, you know, the best Facebook ad. There's a whole funnel and, you know, starting from the product, which makes the biggest difference in the world. You know, having a founder that has a marketing mindset while they're making product I think actually helps you set up for success from the get-go versus, hey, we have this product, go market it and figure it out. You know what I mean? Two questions. Do you focus primarily on Facebook or what channels are you focused on? So I'm focused on three channels, one being Facebook, two being email and SMS, and three right now, this is kind of our newest one for larger brands, is ambassador program management and sourcing product to get new creative for the brand. And so those are the kind of the three that we're focusing on. The clients who are seeing success working with an agency, what are they doing well? What are the things that separate them from the ones who are floundering and throwing money into the wind? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think a lot of it is just having a, is it always helps just having a strong internal stakeholder. So instead of outsourcing all of your responsibilities to the marketing agency. They have their own strategy, game plan, promotional calendar. Like there's new products coming out. There's already promotions planned. Like that in itself 
will separate you from most people. Like most brands that I come under the hood for, you know, they don't have a promo calendar in place. There's no real strategy, you know, campaigns for emails are being sent randomly whenever they can get content. And so just having like some of these pillars in place of just having consistent sends on emails, flows are dialed in, there's new product coming. Like a lot of those things sound super simple, but you'd be surprised how many people don't have those dialed in. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. It's really hard to do those things. Right. Facebook and Apple are in a battle. Are there still opportunities to scale on Facebook with the loss of data collection? Or what are the key metrics that brands should be looking at right now to know that their ads are finding success? For sure. So, you know, as you know, the on-platform reporting is bad with the iOS 14 changes. So I think a lot of the metrics in terms of Facebook is just really looking at the on-platform data versus kind of like what I would consider a lag measure. So I kind of like to split things up between a lead measure and a lag measure. Lead measures being, you know, CPM, click-through rate, outbound click. Like those are kind of like the big lead measures that I like to look at on platform because that data is not going to be wonky because it doesn't involve coming off the platform for purchases. And then the lag, the lag measures being ROAS, cost per purchase, number of purchases, that kind of thing. And so I think just kind of like watching that front end to see how the creator is performing and then having a tool like our friends over at Triple Whale and watching site-wide MER or site-wide ROAS. I like to say ROAS. I feel like MER is just a fancy way to say ROAS. Well, how I've understood it, uh, so MER is a marketing efficiency ratio. So whereas ROAS, you'll have, let's say, a 4x return on ad spend. So if I spend a dollar, I make $4. MER would be 25% for the same thing, where the ratio is that percentage. So if you like to see percentages, then go with MER. And if you like standard numbers, then go with ROAS. I think they're essentially the same thing. That's interesting that you said that because I've also seen people do, you know, because of 20. 5% MER is a 4X. They also say 4X MER. Yeah. And I always just thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, just call it 4X. But I like seeing that as well. I like seeing the percentage because I, in my mind, I think about product margins. Yeah. And then I think a percentage of that margin or that total price point, it kind of helps me quantify it. Yeah, from like a P&L standpoint. Yeah, exactly. We've been focused on new customer MER or new customer return on ad spend as a a key metric for us in determining how successful we are because we have so much organic and we want to make sure that the paid stuff is actually working. That's awesome. Are you just using Shopify's analytics to track that or are you like using a triple whale or? What is it called? Supermetrics plugs in? Uh, Supermetrics. We've got it tied into like a data studio from Google and it loads like super slow, but has all sorts of cool metrics. Cool metrics. Cool. Where can people get a hold of you? Where can they learn more about what you're doing at Aligned? Yeah, so best place to, you know, for up to date is just my Twitter handle. It's at Josh J Durham, D-U-R-H-A-M. And also if you want to ever book a call, you can come to alignedgrowthmanagement.com. Sweet, man. Yeah, you've been around the block. I appreciate you opening up, being vulnerable about the downs. And then, you know, everyone hears about the good life of the entrepreneur and it's tough out there. So, you know, uh, pour one out for all those who have struggled in building their business as their stories typically don't get told. And I'm lucky that you've persevered to be able to continue to tell your story and help build other businesses. So thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, this has been another e-commerce conversations. Thanks for listening. I hope you guys were able to take away a nugget of information, maybe two nuggets, get 12 and it's like going to (laughs) Chick-fil-A. As always, cheers. Keep on growing. (laughs) 